Today is Friday, July 22nd, 2022, and I'd like to welcome you to our Chapter 49 podcast. Uh, It's a weekly podcast, and uh, this is from NTEU Chapter 49. We are located in the state of Indiana, in the United States, in case there are some people from outside the country, I've actually looked at our data every now and then. We have an international listen. I'm not sure how that came about, but we get them, and we welcome you if you choose to watch or listen to our podcast. Uh, we uh, represent most IRS employees in the state of Indiana, but we also talk about a number of issues that would be of interest to people uh, both in the IRS who are working there and in the civil service in general. And I welcome once again our chapter president, Duncan Giles, who's my normal partner here. Welcome once again, Duncan. Thanks, Larry. God, it's always good to be here. And um, I, I think it's best, you know, whenever we, and I've always believed this, whenever you're on a podcast, video, or audio, the first thing you need to do is talk about the elephant in the room. The elephant in this room is I've got some dental issues, <laughs> and, I'm so, and there's nothing I can do anything about. I'm going to get it fixed, I'm hope, hopefully, next week before the next podcast. So if I sound a little different, or if you're looking at me and saying, is this man missing a tooth? Well, I got some dental work that's just not right, and that my dentist is working on it, but we have to wait for some uh, lab work to be done before it's all done. So hopefully things will be back to normal next week. But uh, if you're looking at me and say something doesn't look quite right, that's everybody sound quite right all the time. Uh, that's the reason why. So with that, I still think you're Larry. I still think you're a shoe in though for the Mr. Congeniality award. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> a toothless version. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about a number of issues today, and you and I both talked beforehand about uh, issues we want to discuss on this podcast ahead of time, but there's something that just came up in the last few hours that I want to talk about. I was going to spend a minute or two talking about this, because it not only impacts people that work for the Internal Revenue Service, it impacts every member of the professional civil service. In the United States government, there are about, and I think I've got this right, roughly 4,000 political appointees. A few of them are in the IRS, but these are very top-level management officials, people like the Commissioner of Internal Revenue, uh, the uh, head of the IRS Chief Counsel's Office, and the Secretary of the Treasury. There's an Undersecretary for Tax. Those are all political appointees. But the people doing the day-to-day work, even amongst management, they are career civil servants. And that has been that way for decades, going back about a century now. There's a story that was posted just really in a few hours before we record this podcast. It was written by a reporter named Jonathan Swan. Jonathan Swan is is a well-known journalist. He's an Australian originally, but is a well-respected Washington, D.C. journalist now. He now works for Axios.com, which is another well-respected Washington-based news organization that's online. He posted a story recently, just like I said, a few hours before this podcast, that uh, the former President Trump is thinking about another run for the White House. There's been no official announcement on that. But the people he has put together to try to uh, establish a second Trump administration, according to Mr. Swan's reporting, is going to bring back this thing that we've talked about before in this podcast called Schedule F. 
Now, as soon as uh, President Biden became president, he uh, did away with with that executive order uh, where there was an attempt to put tens of thousands of career civil servants who are currently in the career civil service into presidential appointees, again, from 4,000 to tens of thousands. It would be a very big change in how uh, the professional civil service is done. Again, this is something that uh, Donald Trump is now putting together with his staff as he uh, mulls whether or not he wants to run for a second term. And the way Jonathan Swan is reporting this, a second Trump administration, should he be elected president again, would make uh, this big change in the civil service a very high priority for them. NTEU has been very clear that these Schedule F proposals as put together by the previous Trump administration and any attempt uh, to bring it back uh, would be very harmful not just to civil servants but to the country as a whole. And you and I have talked about this on a recent podcast about what happens when you have you know, political appointees coming in and out, there's no continuity, and the public really does suffer for a lack of expertise or understanding of how these agencies uh, work. Wanted to make you aware of that, not making a political statement, I'm just describing some very important reporting done by a very well-respected journalist, Jonathan Swan, and just wanted uh, to know, Duncan, if you had any thoughts about this. Yeah, I'm I'm very much a believer in the civil service, and because it is merit based, it is there are several checks and balances to make sure things are done correctly. When you involve political influence, doesn't matter left, right, center, don't care, doesn't matter what party, um, you know it it's not a good thing, and it can definitely interfere with the service to the taxpayers. And this Schedule F is a prime example of that. This is a horrendous, truly horrendous idea that you're not only going to have these Schedule F appointees, but you'll take people who are career civil servants, who have been doing this work for the public, who have competed for their jobs, gone through the process correctly. Now you're going to make them political and at-will employees at the whim of a particular president um, is just not the way to go in my eyes. You want, as you said, that continuity. You want to make sure that the person who's in there has been vetted. Some You may agree with them. You may not agree with the person who has a position, but at least you know they've gone through this process and have gone through the vetting of the civil service. And I think that's extremely important for us to keep. Yeah, my late father worked for 35 years uh, for the Defense Department as as a, a career civil servant. And he always preached to me that the merit system of civil service may not be perfect. No system is, but it's the best system he'd ever seen in terms of making sure we have this continuity of government. We have experts and people who know the jobs in the jobs, and we don't have these constant uh, back and forth every time there's a change in the the party of the president. I told the story of my experience at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles way back when Indiana still had the uh, spoil system for the entire Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And that did spur and change eventually. And I think we're better off as a state for that. And some, it was, part of it was court decisions and part of it was, I think, efforts by people in state government to make it better. So uh, I just want people to be aware that that's out there, that story is out there. Uh, and again, I will tell you that if you uh, go to our Facebook page, NTEU Chapter 49 Indiana, if you have trouble finding it, 
go to Duncan Giles and send him an email or send an email to this email address, nteu49 at aol.com, and Duncan will send you a link and you can follow or like our Facebook page. But we just posted that uh, not long before we record this podcast. So that was our lead story today. What was our lead story before that came up, Duncan, uh, has to do with uh, money. You know, money is very important. Compensation is very important. And uh, we're now getting to the point in here this summer where House and Senate uh, will be taking a look at federal agency budgets. And within that mix is the federal employee pay raise for 2023. So give us an update on the latest there. Yeah, there's uh, been a lot of pushback. Uh, to get a higher pay raise, because as we all know, inflation is still out there. Uh, I, I believe it'll be moderating sooner rather than later, but it's still very high. And we need that higher pay raise to keep up with things like gasoline, like food, uh, rent, mortgages, things of that nature and everything else. So it's it's on every employee to let their representatives know that they deserve this this pay raise and that they should get a higher pay raise. And that's something that, um, you know, NTU is working on on the Hill. We talk to people, both parties, doesn't matter. All we're working on is federal employee rights. And part of those rights is a a decent pay raise. And we're going for that higher pay raise. So we want to continue to push for it. And we want you to continue to push for it as well. And the House of Representatives has already passed the uh, budget provision for a federal pay raise of 4.6%. The Senate will get that, and we really don't have any indication what the Senate may do. Yeah, there's there's no indication of what the Senate may do with appropriation bills. Um, you know, we it's been so long since we've actually passed appropriation bills on time. I, I wouldn't know what to do if we did. Um, you know, they could come down to the omnibus bills later on uh, this fall, we just don't know. But we do know that federal employees do deserve a higher raise than has been proposed. We're looking to try and get a uh, 4.1% raise with a 1% locality pay. Will that take care of everything with inflation? No. But a 5.1% raise is definitely better than a 46 and will help every little bit helps. I'll make a side comment that also in that whole budget process are agency budgets overall. The House gave the IRS a, a very large increase in its budget. Problem is, we don't know again what the Senate's going to do with it. I think it gave, if I remember correctly, it's about a billion dollars, the B, additional for uh, fiscal 2023, which begins October 1 of this year. Um, assuming it's done on time. Of course, as you say, Duncan, it isn't always. In fact, most of the, most years recently, it has not been done on time. But uh, that would a, a billion dollars would help us a lot in taxpayer services, in a, our ability to do audits and collection work, and also upgrade our IT uh, uh, infrastructure. But uh, we're just at the beginning of the process. The Senate still has to tackle this. Exactly so, and and I was very heartened to see that. $1 billion increase because we do need, uh, we need more help everywhere. We need it from the support staff to people on the phones, to revenue officers, to revenue agents, to TCOs, to IT. And God knows we need to modernize our IT systems. And that's tough to do while you're, 
using the IT systems that we currently have. We can't stop and just replace them. We have to do it as is. So it's one of those things that, um, you know, every everything that we can get will help us towards that goal. Let's move on and talk about COVID. I guess it wouldn't be a podcast if COVID didn't come up and, and, and we'll be talking about it in a couple of different ways. There is something we talked about in a previous podcast. There's a little more we need to say about it. This really has to do with people who are applying for a temporary hardship when certain conditions exist. So you can waive that coming into the office two times a pay period. And this only applies in very specific situations. So Duncan, can you clue us in on that? Yeah, you know, because I get, and I'm sure my counterparts across the country uh, get inundated with this because people are nervous about coming in to uh, back to the workplace, especially when uh, they may be high risk for COVID or live with somebody who is high risk, could be autoimmune, compromised, several different things could be. The other part of that is, you know, what is the level of your particular community? And what has happened at this point is if your level of community is high, as uh, judged by the CDC, and you do have a high risk for COVID or someone in your household does, someone in your immediate household does, then you can put in for a temporary hardship to waive the coming in twice a pay period if you have portable work. So those, those are the conditions that have to basically be hit. Your community has to be in a high level, according to the CDC, and you have to have somebody, you know, that's documented that you have either yourself or an immediate family member that lives with you is a high risk for COVID. Under those circumstances, management can waive the, uh, the twice pay period. So I would urge folks who, you know, that's what I've told people that have come to us. Um, that's what our chief steward has told people that have come to her. And I would urge everyone to take a look at that if that's your circumstance. So there really are two elements to this if you want to get this temporary hardship uh, uh, status. Number one, you have to be high risk yourself or somebody in your household. Again, that is defined by the CDC, and you'd have to prove that is the, you have that condition. The CDC lists on that high risk listing. And also you must have a high level of COVID infection in your particular area that where you live and work. And sadly, Duncan, there are more and more of those areas today. Yeah. And a change weekly, according to the CDC's guidelines on reporting. And the sad fact is, is because we think that, and you know, when I say we, I'm talking people that are following this and the experts, and those are the ones I listen to, the folks who have studied this for years, who have the doctorates, who specialize in this, they think the COVID numbers right now, because of the at-home tests and the fact that you're not getting as severe symptoms, are woefully underreported, uh, especially with the new variants that we have out there. And so it's it's something that we're taking a look at to try and make sure to keep everybody as safe as possible. That's that's the goal of NTU and the professed goal of the IRS is to keep everyone as safe and as healthy as possible. We want to talk about more about COVID, but there are a couple of angles of uh, telework that I want to discuss here before we you know, get to COVID again, because what you just mentioned is, is tied to both telework and COVID. There was a recent congressional hearing on basically on the, the future of the federal workforce, 
and there were some comments going back and forth. And there were some comments I saw that were uh, described in the media. There were two members of Congress that made some comments that drew my attention about telework. These two members of Congress in this congressional hearing seemed to be making the argument based on the news reports, and there were some quotes in there. They were saying, well, you know, there are agencies like the IRS and Social Security, and you know, they have these backlogs of work, and they say, they argue that they're one of the reasons that these agencies like ours and Social Security and others, there's a backlog of work is because so many people have telework. And I scratched my head. Now, is that the case? Uh, I saw the same comments that you did. I've read the same reports, a lot of the same reports that you did. And I am so sick and tired of this old tripe coming out. If people are going to be working, they're going to be working whether they're at home or whether they're in the office. The backlogs that we have at the IRS are caused by staffing. They're not caused by the fact that people are teleworking. The vast majority of people that are teleworking are probably as productive, if not more productive, than they would be in the office. And if they're not as productive or if there are issues with telework, there are ways for management to deal with it. To say as a blanket that we're not doing as well because people are teleworking is just crap. And I get so tired of hearing that when it's just, you know, that's the beatings will continue until morale improves type of management style that some of these representatives continue to espouse. Well, and to add to what you said, yes, there are backlogs at IRS because of staffing. We also have to keep in mind our paper processing centers were shut down for months or low-staffed for many months because we had outbreaks of COVID. And we had to separate people who did come into work, I mean, and great distances and so forth. So, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why, for instance, the IRS has this backlog, which it's working, doing the best it can to work on. But uh, the, to say the telework is part of that, I mean, I wanted to hear your view, but it, it shocked me. There are still, and you know this, some pockets of IRS management that agree with these members of Congress that you can't you know, manage people unless you're able to sit there and watch them as they work, uh, which I still think uh, hurts us. And it also brings me to something else that uh, I wanted to bring up, which is tied to telework. The Office of Personnel Management, of course, is the HR office for the entire government. And a recent report came out, and there was data to prove what they're saying here. And this is what I found interesting. And this has a lot to do with the fact that every segment of American society is trying to find employees. You know, it's a shortage of, of, of employees. Well, right now, this report is saying that within the sphere of people who work for the federal government, if people work at an agency, and there's some like that, where there really is little or no telework available, what these people are doing is looking around for jobs, going to an agency like the IRS, where there are jobs available, which can be a part of a telework arrangement, and there are other agencies too. And what they're finding is a huge migration of people leaving agencies where they cannot telework into agencies where they can. So, you know, this is a case where people are voting with their feet. Exactly. 
Exactly. So that's, that's the exact phrase that was in my head. And, you know, this is not just the public sector. This is the private sector as well. You know, where everybody, the private sector is saying, yeah, we need to return to work and, uh, you know, things of that nature. And people are doing the same type of thing. They're looking for jobs where they can work from home or telework more frequently or do a hybrid situation rather than go into the office. So when I hear that people on telework are less productive because they're just goofing off all day and they're not doing their work and things like that, it's simply not true. Statistically, analytically, it's statistically not true. And so when I hear these types of things, it just infuriates me. Well, I, I think there's a, there are just a couple of anecdotes, or not really anecdotes, factual situations that need to be addressed about telework. Telework is not some kind of failure. It's a big success. IRS, which had fought this, for example, at, at call centers now, it's been shown through the data that call center employees can do this work remotely and do it effectively and, and do it well. And we're finding out that, lo and behold, IRS does have the technical ability to do it after years of saying they didn't. So, you know, push came to shove, well, they got it done. So telework, I look at not only as a success as far as uh, the employees are concerned, it's a success for the public. It does make uh, the entire operation more efficient. That has been my experience. Let's move back to uh, COVID again. There's one thing that you've been hearing from employees because we are seeing areas with high uh, incidence of, of COVID outbreaks. We've had situations in your federal building, the Minton Capehart Federal Building in downtown Indianapolis, where certain areas of the building are shut down to be cleaned and uh, because there has been a positive case and there were you had people in close contact with that person. So you have had a lot of people who are members of NTEU contacting you, and I'm sure this is true elsewhere in the country. But uh, employees are saying, hey, what's the matter with NTEU? Why can't NTEU just go in and demand that the management close these offices? So when people ask that question, uh, what's your response? Um, you know, as much as I wish we could, legally, we cannot. Uh, you know, the management has an awful lot of rights, according to statute, and we can bargain over things, over impact and implementation, it's called, but we can't sit there and demand things. Now, are there certain times when I want to say, hey, look, you know, you need to take this building, a uh, particular building and shut it down and, you know, either let it die out for a few days or give it a complete and total cleaning. And we were doing that at the beginning of COVID. But as we learn more about COVID, how long it lasts, how far it goes, things of that nature, uh, management's gone by the CDC direction and said, you know, we just need to hit these particular areas or rooms or things of that nature. Well, that's still very disconcerting to any employee who has rooms around them being shut down because people have gotten COVID and they're like, okay, I'm doing everything right. I'm coming in, I've been vaccinated, I wash my hands, I wear a mask, and I'm still at risk because of these things happening. So as much as we'd like to shut it down for a few days until we get the situation under control, legally we just don't have that authority as much as we'd like to. So I guess the question then is, uh, if when these situations occur, what are your legal rights? What can you do and what do you do? Yeah, when these situations happen and 
Uh, I'm very, very lucky in Indiana. We have a good relationship with our folks in uh, facilities, FMSS. We have a very good relationship with GSA. So I'm very plugged in knowing what's going on, uh, making sure that the proper precautions are being taken, the proper cleanings are being done, things of that nature. I know that across the country, those uh, that type of relationship is not exactly mirrored. Um, so they have more trouble getting information, more trouble figuring out what's going on. And it can just be incredibly frustrating. But I can tell you from National President Tony Reardon, uh, National Vice President Doreen Greenwald, on down to every single chapter leader, we are pressing to make sure that employees are in the safest environment that they can be in. And when there are cases of COVID, that everything that can be done will be done post-haste. Yeah, so the bottom line is uh, NT knows what the legal rights are and are not for a union and what the management rights are. So what NT always does is push for safety to the maximum extent possible. But I think the uh, when, when people say, why can't you close down the building? Well, NTU would love to be able to do that. We don't have that legal authority. I think that's the bottom line, right, Duncan? That's it. It's like, you know, every time that there's a heavy snow or, you know, on the coast, there's flash flooding or something like that. Um, you know, well, why isn't NTU shutting down the building? Why isn't it doing that? You know, there are some things we just don't have the power to do. We would like to, but that's beyond our ken. That's in management's legal right. We can advise, we can talk to them. Uh, if necessary, we can file grievances, but we can't force them immediately to do something. Okay, we've got a couple more COVID issues to talk about. Here's another one. Let's say you uh, you have to quarantine because of your situation, and it's a COVID situation, but yet you do not have portable work. So what are your options in a case like that? Yeah, that's one of the things that National has been going back and forth with the IRS on. And pushing very hard because there are an awful lot of people who are in leave situations who don't have portable work that have come in close contact or have had to quarantine because of something that happened in their uh, personal lives. And so we're pushing to make sure that everybody who possibly can, if you don't have portable work, put in for an ad hoc telework uh, situation. By putting in the ad hoc paperwork and having that there, if you do come across the situation, then we're pushing IRS to let you do trainings, briefings, anything of that nature that you can do from home on your computer so you wouldn't have to use up all your leave. Because COVID leave that was granted by Congress that was being done during the evacuation order has all but vanished because of the fact that we're back to work and the uh, laws covering it have expired. So your best bet is to try and get ad hoc do whatever portable work you can from home. And that way, if you're feeling up to it, you're saving your leave. Well, Duncan, we have had two presidents in the COVID era, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Each one of them have tested positive for COVID. And uh, what we're seeing now with President Biden is people who are in close contact, like his wife, like the vice president, like other people who are in, you know, a physical proximity to a president uh, during a, a normal day, uh, they are all considered close contacts. I understand they've all tested negative so far, but uh, let's bring it down to the, uh, the bottom level. What do you do? Let's say if you have been in close contact with someone and you later find out 
that person tested positive were probably positive at the time that you were with that person. Yeah, as with everything else with COVID, that this advice changes as we learn more about it and it gets updated. Um, what they're saying right now is if you've had COVID in the last 90 days or you're properly vaccinated per the CDC, that you're going to be okay. If you are not, if you don't meet those criteria, then you're going to need to quarantine for at least five days. In the IRS guidance, it says that if you are quarantining for at least five days, but less than 10 and coming back to work, that you need to have a test that shows that you are not, that you're not positive, that you're negative for COVID. And that has to be done through an independent thing. You can't self-certify for that. So the guidance is all out there on the web. Contact your, if you have this type of situation, contact your manager, contact your NTU rep in your area, um, because there are a lot of moving pieces to this and they do change. So we want to make sure that you get the best protections that you can and the most updated information. Okay. Last COVID issue I'm bringing up. We Thank talk- God. <laughs> well, at least for now. <laughs> and we have to, I mean, we have to cover it, but I'm sure people listening are tired of listening to it as we're tired of reporting it, but we've got to get you the information. Well, I'll say one thing. I'm just happy we have better treatments for COVID. It's not putting people in the hospital and there are still people dying. Don't get me wrong, but the treatments are much more advanced and there are fewer people in the hospital and fewer people dying, but uh, particularly people with um, uh, other complicating issues, you can still die from COVID, but we're still in a much better position now than before. But back to our issue. You and I talked about something called temporary hardship. So first of all, what I'd like you to do is just once again explain when a temporary hardship may apply, when you can request one, and what you're going to deal with when you make a request for a temporary hardship. Yeah, what's happened a lot of times now at this point is people are going on and doing the proper procedures for filing for what's called a temporary hardship. And there's a portal out there. If you type into the IRS search box, temporary hardship, It'll take you to the permanent slash temporary hardship area. You put in your situation. You know, if you're if you're not out wanting to come into work because of what we talked about earlier, high risk, and you're at uh, high risk of, um, you know, potentially catching COVID because of your medical conditions or those living with you, then you, you know, file this with your medical documentation. Well, there's of course, has been a huge bottleneck because of the, quote, unprecedented numbers that have uh, hit IRS. Big shock. And so we're trying to figure out nationally, and, uh, you know, every chapter leader, I can tell you, I can guarantee you, has been trying to figure out what's going on, why are we not getting the approvals? Well, the folks in the Human Capital Office, HCO, said, yeah, we're getting unprecedented numbers, but it's not us. Uh, apparently the bottleneck is at the executive level because these temporary hardships have to be approved by the first level executive in a business division, not your manager, probably not your second level manager, but an actual executive. And so that apparently is where the bottleneck has been. What the IRS is now saying is that divisions, different divisions of the IRS, because remember, we're not all one IRS. That would be way too easy that we're, you know, 13 or 14 or 20, whatever the number is now, IRSs uh, can tell their executives that they can delegate that authority down 
to give a provisional approval to a manager or second level manager. And what the provisional approval is, is until the executive is able to take a look at this and make a final determination, the manager or second level manager can say, okay, I've taken a look at this. I've seen the documentation. As of right now, you don't have to report to the office twice a pay period because of your situation. Now, that may change when the executive makes their determination, but as of right now, provisionally, you're okay. And I would hope and encourage every single division to be able to push that level down because that's what you pay your management folks for, their discretion the, you know, and their knowledge. So they should be able to make these calls. That's why they're managers. So I would hope that they would allow um, at least second-level managers, if not frontline managers, to make these provisional calls so we can ease this bottleneck and folks can have answers. You know, Duncan, when you talked about this, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we had one IRS? You know, I, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Charles Rosati. Now, for those of you who have been around IRS long enough to remember the days of districts and regions, we had districts, <coughs> then we had regions above that, then we had our national office. When Charles Rosati first became commissioner of IRS, he said, I want to send an email to all employees. And people just kind of laughed. He goes, why are you laughing? He goes, we have, I think it was six regions. They all have a different email system. At that time, there was no national email system. <laughs> and the first thing he said is, oh, we're going to change that. And I think Charles Rosati made an effort to the extent that he could to kind of unify IRS into a one IRS. But I think since his days as commissioner, we've kind of migrated in a different direction. I kind of like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I remember that story very, very well. And that is absolutely true because I asked Commissioner Rosati about that one time when I met with him and he said, yes, that's true. Um, he was very technological driven. And that's, that's one of the things that, you know, we've, we've had these laws passed by Congress. They're working on this, um, the new IRS, and it's supposed to be more streamlined and supposed to be one IRS. Um, you know, you had decades of experience here. I've had decades of experience. Many of our listeners have had decades of experience. Uh, we'll all believe this when we see it. Um, I would like to think that it would be more streamlined, that you would be able to get answers to questions fairly quickly and up a straight line. But as of right now, the way that I see divisions cooperating or many times not cooperating with each other, uh, it makes me seriously wonder how long that'll take. Okay, Duncan, time for your final comment. Yeah, I'd like to talk just a moment today about, about NTU. You know, folks come to us all the time. Um, you know, what is NTU doing for me? Why is, you know, why are they not, you know, doing this or doing that? And at a national and local level, and I know the vast majority of our local presidents uh, across the country, you know, NTU does many things. We're a collective group. We help people. We offer, you know, you can get discounts on several different things. We go on the website. We, we give information. We legislate. Uh, we talk to legislators. We'd like to legislate, but somehow they don't let us vote. Um, you know, we get, get that information, but on the ground, we're here to make sure that the laws, the statutes, the code of federal regulations and our contract are enforced. Sometimes that's going to be 
something that's going to make you very happy. Other times you're going to say, well, that's not enough. I want you to do more. We'd like you to. We'd like to. But we're not able to. We're trying to help the organization run as best it can. And we're going to do the best for each and every employee that we can. That's going to mean sometimes employees are going to be unhappy because we're not able to save their jobs if they've done something that is, you know, clearly wrong, clearly against the rules and has been constantly done. So we tell people, follow the rules and we'll make sure that nobody gets on you, that you won't have retaliation. You're able to enforce your rights. So I just want to say, you know, NTU is there for everyone to make sure that this place is run as best it can. You know, Duncan, I I still remember that day. It was in July of 1983. I had just been hired as an IRS supply clerk. That's where I started, a grade three supply clerk. And I remember going in to see the chapter president at that time. His name was George Bilkey. A lot of people still remember him. And I sought him out, telling him I wanted to join the union. And he looked at me like, wait, you're a grade three clerk and you're seeking me out to join the union. And it was because I just felt strongly about joining this union. My father had worked as a civil servant. He had been active in his union before he went into management uh, in the defense department. Uh, I had, as a news reporter, never had a chance uh, in the media to be a member of a union. The places ever did not have unions. But I, as a reporter, I covered unions all the time and got to know the people and various union activities and had a great deal of respect uh, for the work they did. So, folks, I'm going to tell you something just clear and simple. If the workplace with an NTEU out there helping you, advocating for you, as opposed to an IRS with no union at all, you have no idea what the difference would be. So uh, NTU works. I know when I was a union official, I spent three years as as the vice president of the local chapter. And, uh, uh, you know, I, Dunk has been chapter president for a long time. I was a union official in various different uh, categories during my, my career. And uh, t- let me just say, NTU and, and all federal unions, but NTU does a particularly good job of representing the people that it represents in various agencies, IRS being the largest one. So just realize, you this is, this is a, there's a benefit to being a member, and, and the institution itself, just for what it does every day, is worth supporting, and that's all I've got to say. <laughs> so anything to add, Duncan, before, I, before we wrap it up? Uh, just that I had never belonged to a union. I'd been management or ownership everywhere I'd ever been before I came to the IRS, and I listened to the recruiter that first day and I was one of the first in the class that signed up and people were going, why are you doing this? And I said, you know, if there's an organization out here that's fighting for me, I should belong to it. And I think, you know, you, you probably like that recruiter pretty well that did that. That first day. Yes. And I think I remember the name and his, <laughs> his last name was Lannon, but I was, there I, think, you go. <laughs> I think I was part of a team. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of, I was, I was there, but I wasn't the only one there. And you know, when I was there in 1983, NTU didn't have that opportunity to even go in there as people were, 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 you know, being oriented. So, uh, yeah, that's why George Bilkey was so shocked that I had sought him out. But no, I was, I remember that. And, and, uh, 
speaking to recruiting classes uh, that were coming in toll-free was always one of my favorite things to do. You just heard Duncan Giles. He's our chapter president for NTEU Chapter 49. This has been the Chapter 49 podcast. We do this weekly. If, uh, you would, if you're watching on video and want the audio link, or if you're watching on, uh, you know, either way, you can, you can switch to another mode. Just go to uh, the email address of NTEU chapter 49 indiana and is that right did i get that NTU right 49 nteu 49 at aol.com this is what happens when you get an old guy running the cha- the uh, chapter 49 podcast so yeah you can always get the other mode we're on video and audio each week uh we thank you very much for watching and listening uh we appreciate everyone and if you like what you see in here on this podcast, let other people know and use that email address and Duncan will put you on a listing or anyone else who asks to be on a listing of uh, underst- knowing when we have our podcast. So please be safe and be kind. Mm-hmm.